you got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9 this morning, continuing our study through this book, and we're coming to a section in our text, it's the next, uh, the next major section of our outline, uh, 9 through 11, talking about the sovereignty of God, and I want to say at the outset, if you were looking for a nice um, bedtime devotional story for your children, uh, this is not the text. This is not the one. Uh, This is not Precious Moments, Jesus. This is going to be talking about vessels of wrath. We're going to be talking about God hating Esau. We're going to be talking about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. We're going to be talking about people being smashed onto rocks. And if you read this to your kids tonight before they go to bed, they're going to be sucking their thumbs and hoping that they can sleep with you tonight. Okay? So do not recommend this text uh, for for, uh, evening devotions. But we are going to be looking at This God who this text tells us today is sovereign. And the word sovereign, it means to be all-powerful, to be the supreme authority. And we see that from this passage that God, he is the all-powerful one who's in control of the universe. God's on the throne, not any of us. That this is all revolves around this God. And I mean, I find it so easy in in my life. My, My flesh wants to put myself on the throne. That my, my flesh wants to make the universe about me. And so what I want to do, and, and I imagine I'm, the only, I'm not the only one in this room today who has that inclination. And so what I want us to do is recalibrate our hearts, dial back in to remind ourselves who is sitting on the throne. To take our eyes off ourselves, we're going to do that later with communion, and to put them on our God. So to do that, if you would actually stand with me, and as you do so, close your eyes. This is a faith exercise, all right? And as we do this, what we're going to do, I'm going to read through Revelation chapter 4, and what I want us to do is picture this scene in our mind's eye, and to be reminded of who is on the throne, who this whole thing, our whole lives, everything that we do, what this is, who this is all about. This is John's revelation from God. It says, there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on those thrones sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion, the second an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, O Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is who we've come to worship this morning. This is who this is all about. And God, I pray that we may see you for who you really are, that we may stand in awe and fear and wonder 
and in a response to praise you, to delight in you, and trust you. Amen. You can have a seat. Also let you open your eyes. Don't want to waste all the time I put into this PowerPoint. Now, let's forget, let, let's not forget, let's not forget all the wonderful implications of, of, of the sovereignty of God that we saw in Romans chapter 8, right? What did we just learn? That this God, who's all-powerful, if he's for us, who can be against us? That this God, this sovereign God, is using everything in the universe for our good, every event, and that there's nothing in this universe that can separate us from his love. And as we move into chapter 9, we can't forget the implications of chapter 8. But now in 9 through 11, Paul's going to make us deal with some of the aspects of his sovereignty that might make us feel a little uncomfortable. Some verses that might not sit well with us that we don't even like. But the best thing for us, listen, the best thing for you and I is to fully understand who our God is, all of him, every attribute, every aspect of who he is as he's revealed himself to us in his word and in his creation. And that he is a good God for us to both fear and to trust. So as we begin this section, I actually want to begin with the end in mind. It's so important that we hold this in chapters 9 through 11. We're actually going to begin with the doxology that Paul ends with to cap off this section. And this is what he says. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Who's going, mm, God, you know what you should have done there? Who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him, exists by his power, and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen? Amen. Let us not tell God how he operates. My God is not a God that I can sum up, that I can figure out, that I can lead around. And I'm so glad because that kind of a God would not be a God who's worthy of all glory and praise and honor and worship forever and ever and ever. This God is. And in this text, we're going to be forced to deal with some seemingly contradictions at times, uh, we're going to be forced to live in this tension of the sovereignty of God, that this God is the one who controls every detail in the universe, and yet we also see that he's called us into this responsibility, that he's called us to action and given us a will to carry this action out. And man, there are times as we read through scripture where we have to just live in this tension where our finite human brains can't comprehend all of this, that we can't sometimes reconcile how these two work together. But we need to remember that you and I, as we've been talking about, we only see little puzzle pieces. We do not see the picture on the box. Only our God can see from beginning to end. So let's this morning, as created beings of that creator God, have ears to hear, have, have hearts to receive this good word from our Lord who is both sovereign and good. And he must be both. My niece, uh, June, is an only child for now. For the last two, almost three years, uh, she's pretty much been receiving all of mommy and daddy's attention, which is evidenced here in this photo. They're actually right now in Disneyland. This is a picture from earlier this week, and she's enjoying all the benefits of being an only child, a precious little snowflake. But coming in November to a June near you will be a little baby sister who is about to rock her planet. She has no idea, and if you've got more than one kid, you know exactly what we're talking about here. And when that baby comes, and, and for some reason, June's been calling the baby uh, Grandma. That's the name of 
I don't know, I, I was saying earlier, I, I don't even Freud would want to go near all the, what he's, what's going on there, but baby grandma is coming, and June will no longer be receiving all of mommy and daddy's attention. For a while, she might feel like she's over in the corner with her little Christopher Lloyd haircut going, hey, what about me? What about June? Do you still love me? Like, do you still have, do you have a plan? Do you have interest in who I am, the older, poor, little, neglected daughter? Now, we're going to tie this into Romans 9. Watch the magic. Um, God, in, in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham, he, he promised these, these promises to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And of course, we know that becomes the people of Israel. And God, he has a special uh, relationship with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. His only child, if you will. And, and what he says, he gives specific promises and blessings to Israel that he does not give to the other nations. And ultimately, all of those promises are leading them to this coming Messiah, this rescuer and deliverer of Israel. And he's the one that's going to fulfill all these promises. Life is good for June, for the only child, Israel. But then, this Messiah comes, allegedly, and the people of, of Israel, as a nation, they reject him. In fact, they not only reject him, they kill him. They do not believe that this is the Messiah that's been promised in the Old Testament. Now, this presents a monumental problem for the unbelieving nation of Israel. See, God promised to save his people, Israel, through this Messiah. And then Jesus comes claiming to be that Messiah. So they're left, the unbelieving Jew is left with two options. Either Jesus isn't the Messiah, which means everything that we've been reading in Romans up to this point is not true. This gospel of Paul's is not true. Or God has failed to keep his promises to Israel. Because all of those promises were bound up in this Messiah. And if this is the Messiah, and they've rejected him, they're not receiving all these unconditional promises that God had made to them. So either Jesus is a liar, or God's word is. Now you talk about a rock at a hard place. So how do we reconcile these two? Has, has Israel been cast aside, and now God's doing this new thing with the church and the Gentiles, and it's all, what about Israel? Like June, they're going, hey, what about us? What about us? What about your special people that you made all these unconditional covenants and promises with? And this is where it's so important for us to answer this question as well. How can God's promises ever be trusted if he's failed Israel? If he has not kept the promises to them, everything we just read about God's unshakable plan and promises in Romans 8 gets tossed into a garbage can of lies because he's not a God that we can trust. If he's failed them, why wouldn't he fail us? Is God still in control? of the events of human history, and can we trust him? That's what's on the table. I believe the question, the main question Paul's asking in these chapters, and I think it's so important to keep this in context, is why did God reject Israel? What, and ultimately, what is his plan for these chosen people? And I think what Paul wants to show us in 9 through 11 is to show that God is right to vindicate God, to show that he's just and, and right in what he did in his plan for Israel. I think that's where he's showing us. That's, that's where he's going in these three chapters. In chapter 9 this week, we're going to see God's sovereignty. We're going to see God's side of the, the, of the deal. Then next week, we're going to look at our responsibility as, as people, what our choice is in the deal. And then finally, wrapping it up in Romans chapter 11 with God's final purpose. And we will see that God is in charge. And I believe what we're going to see as we take this journey over the next three to four weeks is that God is sovereign, and he never has and he never will go back on a single promise that he's ever made that you and I can trust him with the events of human history and we can trust him with our lives today. That's what we so desperately 
need to hear. So let's look at this text together. First of all, he's going to state the problem. State the problem. Verse 1, chapter 9, uh, ESV, for the most part, is what we'll be looking at. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So what's he have anguish in his heart about? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is a Jew himself. And what he's referring to here is his, his, his fellow countrymen and women of Israel. He has an understandable, breaking heart for their salvation. Many of his friends, family, and loved ones that he's grown up with his entire life are hurtling toward a Christless eternity because they have rejected their Messiah. And what he says is, man, I wish I could take their place. I wish I could be cut off for, from Christ so that they would know him. Now, under, and important here, what he says, I could wish, for I could wish, Paul understands how salvation works. He can't die for anybody. That was for Jesus and Jesus alone. But what he's speaking here, he's speaking emotionally and saying, I would do anything. I would even trade places with them if that was possible. If I could wish that. I know it's not right to wish that, but I, 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 I wish I could wish that. And don't we think in our own lives, those that we know, our loved ones, and our, our hearts should break for our community in this way, that man, if there was anything I could do, would I be willing to give my own life up? that people would know Jesus. And then he states the problem. And I'm going to show this in the New Living because I like the way it unpacks it. But he says, they are the people of Israel that his heart's breaking for. Chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God. There's a nod to the deity of Jesus, if you needed it. The one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So here's the problem that he's stating. If God made these unconditional vows to Israel, and what did he, what did he promise them? I'm going to bless the seed of Abraham forever? That I am going to be their God eternally? That I'm going to put them in this land, this physical space over in the Middle East, Palestine, they're going to dwell in that land ultimately forever. And then there's going to be this king coming from the line of David who will sit and rule on the physical throne of David forever and ever. And he, he promises this wonderful, beautiful, glorious future for them. But here's the problem. If all that's true, Paul anticipates the unbelieving Jew coming back with him and going, wait a second, you made that unconditional promise, but now that we've rejected this Messiah, it seems like you're going back on all those promises. We're Israel. We're his chosen people. He can't reject us like that, can he? So here's Paul's explanation for that question. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He says, no, this is not God going back on his promise. In fact, the very character of God, that he is a faithful, true, just, right, holy God, he can't go back on his promises. That's outside of his own character. Okay, so Paul reconciled this for us. He says, I will. Thank you for asking. Second part of six. Not, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, we've got to follow his logic here. He gets into it a little bit here. Not all of the physical descendants of Israel are necessarily a part of this covenant promise that he's made with Israel. And this is where he starts, at the beginning with Abraham. Not all are the children of, not, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because they physically came from him, but through Isaac your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. So let me kind of unpack that for us. Abraham had at least two sons, right? In fact, according to the song, he had many sons, and I am one of them, and, and so are you, right? Right arm, left arm, okay. So, um, we, so, so here's, I don't know why I get myself off track with that stuff. Um, Paul sovereignly chose Isaac, to be the line of promise of this covenant. He did not choose Ishmael. Ishmael and his descendants, where we know many of the Muslim nations came from, they're not a part of this covenant. They're not a part of these blessings that God made through Isaac. He says it's through Isaac, not any of his other sons, not through Ishmael. And we know that today. They're they're not a part of this, this promise. Now some might go, well, yeah, that's true, but Ishmael was illegitimate, right? He came from a bondservant. He didn't come from didn't come from Abraham's wife. And so there's a difference there, right? He says, it's a good point. So let's move to the next generation. Let me, let me show you this one. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So he says, this is a different situation. Jacob and Esau, they're twins. They come from the same mom and the same dad. So how did he make his choice there? And he actually chooses that out of the two, it'll be Jacob and not Esau. Now, if anything, Esau was born first. So if anyone's going to receive the birthright, the blessing, the name, the promised line, it should have been Esau. But what does he say here? He goes, before they were even born, in the womb, I chose. Which one would be a part of this covenant line? He says it's not based on their actions. It's not based on their merit. It's not like Jacob was in there doing like baby Bible studies with Rebecca's organs, right? Like he's this really good guy and Esau's in there terrorizing Jacob, like kinking his umbilical cord, <laughs> you know? He's not, he's, this is not, he's not, he says, this is not based on your merit. I chose who would be descended from, from Isaac. God's showing he does not make decisions based on our deserving it. And I'm so glad that that's the case. And then he says, verse 13, this is a tough one. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, wait a second. When I read in my Bible, John 3, 16, it doesn't read, for God so loved the world, except Esau. He hated Esau. Boo, Esau, right? That's not, that's not the reading of it. Maybe in the message, but not in typical translations. So what's he saying here? We have to take this in context. First of all, he's talking about nations and the line of covenant blessings. And what he's saying here is, I chose Jacob to keep the line of the covenant blessings, not Esau. It's not that I hated Esau, it's that I've rejected him as to be the next one in line to receive the covenant blessings. And the context of this verse is taken from Malachi. And what what God is talking to in Malachi is not Esau the individual, but the Edomites that Esau came from. He's actually pronouncing through, through a prophet the righteous judgment of these people because of their sinful actions. So we have to keep these things in context. God always tells us, if you read the big story of Scripture, that he loves the sinner and he hates the sin. And this is not God contradicting his word there, so we need to keep these things in context. And also, context, notice here that God is not necessarily saying he's choosing one of them for heaven and one of them for hell. What's he saying here? He's talking about who will be a part, the next in line in his covenant blessing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is not saying, this does not mean that Ishmael nor Esau couldn't be saved, couldn't place their faith in God. 
In fact, he's not saying that they're, I'm not going to bless them in any way. You read other portions, both, both of these two guys, Ishmael and Esau, are blessed by God in different ways. And he is faithful to them in different ways. They're just not a part of the covenant blessing. That's why it's important to hold these things in context. But he anticipates, Paul anticipates there's going to be some objections. Because he said some controversial things, just like some of you are thinking of some objections toward me right now. All right? Be nice. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul anticipates this rebuttal. Is it fair for God to use one person for a better purpose and this other person that he seems to not be using them for, for as good of a purpose? Like, can he do that? Like, is God allowed to do that? Now let's remember, let's remember our place. Each of us are sinful rebels against a holy God who deserve nothing but his wrath. What do we say the very definition of mercy is? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. What we deserve is wrath. So any good thing, any non-wrath thing that happens to any of us is just that. It's a gift. It's the grace of God in our lives. Therefore, God is never less than fair with any individual, but he is often more than fair. Amen? And as God, he reserves the right to show mercy on anyone he chooses. So let's put this in a place we can live. Let's say there's two people involved in a head-on collision. One person dies and the other person lives. Now we know there's human responsibility. Maybe the one guy swerved. Maybe the one guy was under the influence. We don't know. But they had a head-on collision. And if we believe that God is sovereign, if he is in control of all things, there's a degree to which God chose who lived and, and who died. And that's a tough pill to swallow. Now you could ask, why did God choose one of them to die? But maybe the better question is, why in his undeserved mercy did he let either one of them live? And maybe, just maybe, we don't see the puzzle picture on the box. Maybe it was God's mercy taking that person home when he took them home. We, we don't see the big picture. We don't know what God is doing. Listen, no sinner has ever deserved a single good thing from God. The crazy thing isn't that God lets some people go to hell. The crazy thing is that he, in his mercy, would give the gift of life to even one sinner. He moves on, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. Now, God, he sovereignly puts Pharaoh, a.k.a. Yul Brynner, in a position as king of Egypt. And God is showing his power in the rescuing of, of Israel from this nation state of Egypt. And again, I think he's talking more nation states. There was actually several pharaohs involved, not just one man, over the course of this, this history. And I don't think this, this passage is teaching that Pharaoh was like this really nice guy who really, really wanted to love God, but God's like, no! You're going to be an anti-Semite. Deal with it, right? That's not, I do not believe that's what's going on here. In fact, you go back to Exodus, the first five plagues, it's actually Pharaoh, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then the next five plagues, it says God hardened his heart. And I believe that God allowed Pharaoh's heart to pursue its natural inclinations. But we still have to deal with the hard pill to swallow that God is sovereign and he allowed this hardened heart 
and he used it sovereignly to glorify himself through the rescuing of the people of Israel. Now you might come back and go, wait a second, and he does, he says this in verse 19, you will say to me then, he knows there'll be more pushback, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Like if this was God's will for him to have a hardened heart to save Israel, is Pharaoh at fault here? Are we all just mindless marionettes in God's grand puppet show? This is how I guess I see puppets. Um, <laughs> I have to go back and watch Sesame Street again. So is this, is this what God's doing? Like do any of us have responsibility if God's just sovereignly doing whatever he wants? My buddy has a son who just turned 10. And on the day of his, the actual day of his 10th birthday, uh, that day, he started copping this attitude. Started being super disrespectful. Uh, he wasn't listening to his parents. And they're kind of like, what's going on here? So dad says, son, we need to have a chat. Sit down on the bed and go, what's up? What's up with the attitude? And his son looks at him and in all seriousness, he goes, oh, well, I'm, I'm 10 now. So like, I'm, I'm basically an adult, right? And, and I've been noticing that, <laughs> that, that uh, you and mom, you don't always do it right. Like, you miss the mark sometimes. So I've decided, like, if I see it, I'm just going to do it, right? That's kind of where I'm going to go. <laughs> I mean, how, how are you responding if that's your kid talking to you like that? He's like, <laughs> okay, go to your room until you're 18, right? I mean, like, what, what, what do you, what, how do you respond to that? You and I do not get to waltz into the throne room of God and tell him what's up. We don't have the permission to go into this, this sea of glass to, to go to this place where these bizarre eyeball angel beasts are worshiping God and there's this emerald circle of, of rainbow around him and this holy of holies and we don't go walking in there and going, God, you got it wrong. There's a couple of things you missed that I want to point out to you. You're there. You're getting close. You're doing great. The Bible says that if we saw God face to face in this moment right now, we would die. That's our God. And what did he, how did he respond to Job and his friends when they were trying to question God and his motives and what he was doing? He looks at them and he says, who are you? And who am I? And this is exactly what he does here in verse 20, to a very difficult question. He says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is a hard one to sit on. But he goes, listen, I'm God and you're not. And as the clay, you don't have the right to question the potter. You and I are on a need-to-know basis. I'll tell you what you need to know. We have a lot of questions for God that are not answered. And we have to trust that everything that we need to know about him, he's made known to us in his word and in creation. And everything else, we've got to let God be God. And that is a tough place for us sinful, little, fleshly, proud creatures who want to know it all and want to be our own God of our own universe. So then he gives some promise, some proof of, of this promise not being voided to Israel. Number four, jump down with me to verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, remember that was the promise, only a remnant of them will be saved. He's quoting here from Hosea and, and Isaiah to, to uh, talk about God's purpose. He goes, this was actually talked about in the Old Testament. Just to show you, I'm not changing my plan. I'm not changing my promises here. God never promised that every person born from Abraham's line, physically, would be a part of this covenant blessing, would receive the benefits of this promise. We already saw that it was Isaac's descendants, not Ishmael's, Jacob's, not Esau's. 
And now he goes a step further, and he goes, you remember back in the, and this was the context, Isaiah was talking about when the people of Israel would be exiled into Assyria because of their own disobedience, because of their inability to keep the law, and, and, and God punishes them rightly, sending them to Assyria. And he says, but I promised I'm going to bring some of you back, not all of you, but a remnant. I will keep a remnant of Israel alive to preserve the promises that I made to them at the beginning. God's unconditional promises will be preserved. I'm going to raise up this line. Paul's using his prophets to show, no, 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 God never went back on his promise. What did he promise? That he would bless Israel. He didn't say every physical descendant. Verse 29 says, and, and Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, a seed, that's the word there, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Everybody was wiped out. And he goes, listen, if it was not for the mercy of God, sinful Israel would be just like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what they deserved because of their sinful disobedience. But in my mercy, I've chosen to make these promises to them so I will preserve a remnant so that my promises will stand true. And if it wasn't for his mercy, there would be not one of us this morning sitting here in a right relationship with God. Not one of us would be saved if it wasn't for his sovereign grace. And then he wraps it all up, the conclusion here he makes. There's a lot here, but we'll, we'll read it and then we'll sum it up. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, he introduces the Gentiles, here we come in, who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. That's been his gospel in the gospel of Romans. But that Israel, who pursued a law would, that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it, pursue righteousness, by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, this is Jesus, of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why did God temporarily reject Israel? Because they rejected the true Messiah. Now, it's important to understand here what he's saying. There have never, ever been two ways of salvation. It was not Old Testament, it's law, works, New Testament, it's grace and faith. It has always been the same for every human being. Anybody who's been saved from their sin is by faith in this Messiah, and his name is Jesus. He gave them a law in the Old Testament to show that they couldn't keep it, and they put their faith forward in the coming Messiah who would deliver them. Their salvation was by faith. That's why he introduced the sacrificial system into this law. He goes, you're inevitably going to fail. And when you do, I want you to kill this animal to show that someone else is going to come and die for you, that someone else is going to save you from your sins, that you can't keep this law. You see, it's always been Jesus. It's the Old Testament saints that look forward by faith to the sacrificial system. And the New Testament saints, us, we look back on the finished work, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. The object of faith has always stayed the same. Now, what's Paul's point here? I do believe, I do believe that chapter 9 could be implying, it leaves the door open, that God sovereignly chooses some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell, certain individuals. Um, I, I have to, I mean, we, what we're saying here is we don't know how God operates, and there's plenty of scriptural evidence that could, that could lean that way. I do not think that's the point of this passage at all, and I have personal doubts of that, if that's true. And I encourage you as a Berean to read the scripture yourself and to wrestle with it. And I think God's going to show us what he, what he needs to show us. But I think the point here, the point that Paul is trying to make is not, oops, the screen blacks out. It's not who God sovereignly chooses for heaven or hell. It's how God sovereignly chooses for heaven and hell. How does anybody come to God? He says, I've decided in my sovereign mercy 
for people to come to me one way. He says this in verse 32. Why didn't Israel, what happened? Why did they stumble? Because they did not pursue it. They did not pursue a right relationship with me by faith, but as it were, based on works. They tried to look at their own ability to keep the law to be right with God and not by faith. And it's always been the case for them today, for them then, and for us today, by faith in Jesus. That is the only way that anybody can come to God. So what's the conclusion? We need to let God be God. God is the one, he's the only one sitting on the throne. It's not a two-seater. There are times in my life when I would tell God I would do it very, very differently. You know what? I've got to trust that I would make an infinitely crummier God than God. You do not want me on the throne, right? I wouldn't be able to control the twos and threes year old, three class next door, let alone the entire universe. God is on the throne, and he is, listen, he is both good and sovereign, and he must be both. If he's good and not sovereign, he can't do anything about it. And if he's sovereign and not good, that's a terrifying uh, uh, titan. And even when his sovereign choices are a difficult pill to swallow, imagine the infinitely more terrifying uh, situation. Imagine if God wasn't in control. It'd be chaos and anarchy. And we tend to think that we're in control of our lives, right? Like, especially in, in today's generation, like, we think that there's always, a, there's something to solve everything, right? Like, I'm sick, there is a doTERRA essential oil out there for that very purpose, right? And we can fix things. There's some specialist, some doctor I can go and see, and they'll fix me right up, right? Something not going in my right, there's life, there's mental, emotional, intellectual breakdown, there's some counselor, there's someone I can see to fix it. There's an app for that, Right? There's a life-fixing app to address every situation in my life, and we have to come to realize that we are at the mercy of a sovereign God, a God who could snatch us out of this earth whenever he wanted to, a God that could use us for any purpose that he wants to. But we can't forget those truths of Romans 8. That is the same God who loves you, that nothing can separate you from that love, that is for you, will never be against you, nothing else bigger or stronger than him will come in who can take you away from him, and that he's using everything in your life, in his sovereignty, for your good, if you place your faith in Jesus. We cannot forget the image that we started with with, in Revelation chapter 4. God is on the throne, and there is not a more beautiful truth in all the universe. Next week, we're going to talk about Romans 10, how we enter into that throne room, how we have a relationship with that sovereign God, how we can watch, walk boldly into there, fearing and trembling. And that one way is through faith in that Messiah. That's what chapter 10 is all about. You close your eyes with me, and we're going to pray to this God, and, I, and I'm going to invite the, the ushers to come forward. We're going to go into our time of offering, and, and as we write checks and pull out bills and um, prepare to put some things in a plate, I want us to remember to not lose sight of this image that we're talking about, who this God is that we're approaching, this sovereign, holy God who lives in unapproachable light, this this God who, who rules the universe. We don't rule the universe, and God, as we come to you, we come humbly, recognizing how often we doubt you, we mistrust you, we want to be the gods and, and rulers of our own universe, and that we're not comfortable with you being on the throne the control issues in our lives are out, of, are out of control. And so, God, we pray that in your mercy, you would dial our hearts back in. As we go tomorrow to go back to work, to go to school, interact with coworkers, family members, we face very difficult decisions. Some of us are looking at puzzle pieces in our lives, and we don't see 
how you could possibly be good and sovereign if this is what's on my plate. God, we need the grace to trust you more and, and to believe that you are on the throne and that your purposes and plans for us are, are good. And just like Israel going, wait a second, God, what about us? Don't forget us. Don't leave us. Don't forsake us. Don't abandon us. And you force them to do some heart work. This is not God rejecting Israel. This was Israel rejecting God. And God, in our own life, it's easy to doubt your promises, that you're going to finish what you started, that you're never going to leave us or forsake us. Father, help us, give us eyes of faith to look back over the course of human history and see that you have never failed. You never failed Israel, and you're never going to fail any one of us in this room. That if we push all the chips into the middle of the table and say, I'm following Jesus, I'm going to trust him and him alone as my identity, as my security, as hope for the future, And our hope can be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. God, we've got to believe that you're on the throne. That the only way that we can come, that you decreed in your sovereign mercy, was to come in the name and the blood of Jesus. And it's that name that we offer these offerings. It's in that name that we can come to the throne of God. You are God alone, and it's only in Jesus' beautiful, sovereign name that we come. And it's in that name that we do. Amen.